Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 20 of the podcast, the topic is the digitalization of Kerber. Our guest is Daniel Jabo, CEO of Kerber Digital. In this conversation, we talk about transforming a German industrial company through digital acquisitions and spin-outs. Kerber went from mechanical engineering company to diversified manufacturer through the 1990s to an international technology group over the past five years with a digital arm focusing on venture building, building digital solutions, and digital enablement. We discuss building new businesses that leverage unfair advantage, accessing customers to co-develop scale commercially, and where is European industry heading, and how to combine agility and scale. Augmented is a podcast for leaders, hosted by futurist Thrun Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG Works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented. Upskilling the workforce for Industry 4.0 Frontline Operations. Daniel, how are you today? Yeah, very good, Trent. How are you? I'm fantastic. I thought we would talk a little bit about the, you know, how your company and you have digitized pretty drastically over the past few years. So that's exciting. Great. Yeah, it's quite exciting. Great idea. Let's do that. Let's do that. So Daniel, you are uh, an entrepreneur and you've worked sort of across uh, a bunch of different industries, uh, but also, you know, and, and, and always very interested and, uh, you know, tuned to kind of digital problem solving and, and improvement. I wanted to ask you first off, what is it that got you into, I guess, engineering and, and then into manufacturing? Yeah, so I think like that is an interesting story. So by education, I'm actually an economist and I, by coincidence, started in the life science industry in the beginning of my career. So um, had no clue about the industry uh, and uh, had the first part of my career there. And it's basically a similar story how I got to be CEO of Kerber Digital, uh, which is uh, the digital arm of a large uh, industrial goods company came basically through my experience around digital in the pharma space, because originally I started as chief digital officer for the pharma machinery business of Kerber. And then uh, through that, I basically uh, came into uh, heading the overall digital business area. And Kerber is interesting because they they were, of course, like most companies a while back uh, that were in... um you know, in engineering and, and manufacturing. They, they were, of course, you know, a, a mechanical company. They had factories, they had products, but they weren't necessarily a digital company. Um, it is a bit of a conglomerate, right? It's, it's now, you, you know, involved in a bunch of different uh, business areas from, from pharma to, to various sort of supply chain and, uh, and then, you know, in, involved in manufacturing and production of various goods. With a, I, I guess, a focus on on both hardware, software, and IoT. Now you have transformed it, and you are leading a digital arm of Kerber. Can you tell me a little bit about how this transition happened at Kerber? What what instigated the transition? And I understand part of the transition wasn't just to create 
this specific digital entity that you're heading up that we'll talk about, but it was also a bunch of acquisitions. Um, so, you know, as much as you know about this story, it's just an interesting story in, I guess, a, an industrial company transforming over time. Yes, certainly. So maybe uh, let's go a little bit back because I think it's, it's relevant for the discussion. So Kerber was uh, created by an entrepreneur by heart, a guy called Kurt Kerber, uh, 75 years ago. And at that time, he was really one, uh, today you would call him a, a visionary tech entrepreneur. At that time, I think it was called a little bit different, but he basically started uh, uh, doing machinery goods uh, and uh, for the tobacco industry. That's where the company started and uh, was very early on investing in technology, investing into uh, uh, digital product, chip design and so on for uh, serving that industry with machines. And then um, uh, a while back, basically, uh, the decision was taken by the board to say, okay, uh, digital, if you want to be a technology leader, we need to lead with digital technology. And uh, the company is growing since uh, since years uh, through acquisitions, right? They created new industry arms. So we're also active in the supply chain field, the pharma space, and tissue uh, manufacturing. Uh, and we, we grow by... Uh, buying entrepreneurial organizations uh, largely and both on the machinery side, but also on the software side. So there's a very, very strong will and appetite uh, to become uh, a digital leader in the manufacturing space. And you see this not only with Gerber Digital, I'm sure we're talking about that a couple minutes later, but also with uh, some of the businesses we're having in our business area. So we are the market leader for MES systems in the pharma space, um, for example, we are third largest warehouse management software provider globally, and we always have this combination of hardware and software in the IoT space, and that is basically uh, going through the strategy since, I would say, about five years and very consistently. Hmm. So th these acquisitions that were made were, were all happening, I guess, uh, over the last, at least what I have in front of me here, over the last five years. So they were, you know, back in 2016, Cubica Logistics, and then a company called MTC, Big Rep, and then Systech, and Conyun, and Centric, Cohesio. I don't know if I have covered all of them, but... Uh, do do you know what, you know what what instigated that that sort of acquisition spree? Was it was it really a uh, kind of a, a cohesive strategy in tor in terms of kind of building out the digital footprint, or is it a little more complicated than that? Because, and, and then secondly, I was just curious: have all of these <clears throat> acquisitions been folded into your digital company, or are they all sort of uh, all around the company now? Are they uh, all around in different business units? So let me try to answer the first question first. Um, so I'm not in all the details because I just joined in 2019, the organizations. But it's basically, from my understanding, uh, the result of a strategy planning out <clears throat> to become leading players in the industry verticals we are playing. And these companies are basically uh, contributing to that. Uh, and a lot of those with software products. Hmm. Um, and uh, to the second question, so they're not all folded into Kerber Digital. Kerba Digital is basically acting as a company builder that builds standalone own companies, software companies. And these uh, larger uh, companies are then folded into the corresponding business areas. 
so for example, the MES leader is called uh, Verum, the company, uh, originally, but it's now a, a Kerber company. Uh, and that is part of the business area pharma because we basically uh, go industry by industry with the uh, full solution suite being its software and hardware. And that's how we structure it for the moment. Hmm. So tell us a little more <clears throat> sorry, about how uh, the uh, digital unit that you run, the, the, the self-standing uh, Kerber digital unit, what, what goes into the thinking there? Um, and, and, and is it so that you were there from the beginning, from the inception of this uh, entity? No, so I wasn't there from the inception. So that uh, the inception was somewhere in uh, 2017. And one of the companies that you mentioned before, Conyun, was basically... Uh, basically the starting point of one of the starting points basically to integrate it in there. Um, so the business area digital, so Kerber Digital is basically a standalone business area that really focuses basically on two roles. Number one is we help and enable our uh, sister business areas uh, to enhance the core offering with digital products. So these are basically then natural extensions to machine businesses most of the time. And there we basically help them with technology capabilities and uh, developer teams to uh, do that efficiently. And then the second role is really focusing about creating new sustainable business uh, for the future. And there we're focusing on AI-powered AI -powered manufacturing solutions. And there we basically have an approach where we uh, run structured ideation in order to identify customer problems that fall in the category of um, we can use data, AI to create solutions that can help uh, users to create value uh, through optimizing uh, manufacturing. And there we basically uh, uh, work closely together in core development approaches with customers and when we see that we have strong enough potential, which means typically that we have a proof of concept that we can create value that is uh, significantly enough, that we have uh, the potential to build an industry solution that is machine agnostic. So we don't build software products that optimize Kerber machines, but we build software products only that optimize the entire fleet installed in an industry. So that's what I call machine agnostic, which is a little bit untypical if you come more from the machinery uh, space. And thirdly, uh, we go for big ticket items. So we only uh, look at opportunities where we do believe that they have unicorn potential, even though scaling takes a little bit longer typically in the industry space. And then we create standalone entities, hire dedicated management teams, and we're basically working along the lines to build a portfolio of successful software as a service companies uh, that increase production efficiency through AI, uh, with the goal to have two to three companies per year accepted, and then uh, over the years to have a portfolio with the overall goal to become a leader in AI-powered manufacturing efficiency across industries, uh, even though we start today mainly uh, through leveraging our unfair advantage of having close relationships with uh, industry customers in certain industries, having a lot of trust and a good way to commercialize. But then in the next step, we also always look, how can we go in other industries once the product is proven and has uh, shown value? And Daniel, where are you on this journey today? Because, uh, you know, if you if you said it sort of started around 2017 and with Konyun in 2018, 
um, that's not a long time ago. <laughs> it's basically yeah. three years. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not a long time to create a portfolio of digital companies that are transforming in the industry in a unicorn way. So I was just kind of curious, where are you? Yeah, so like it, it certainly feels much longer, right? So we're really... Uh, uh, here in a in a race so to say it's crazy a lot of things are going on but at the moment we have uh, one uh, very successful iot company called factory pal uh, that is basically bringing up to 30 percent productivity increase to manufacturers of tissue materials tissue materials is typically napkins uh, paper towels uh, uh, toilet paper these kind of products and there we basically show very, very strong uh, results, strong uptake, and we're basically scaling this company now. So we are going to the yes right now, and we're really uh, investing heavily to scale this into the market. So this is our, let's say, our front runner. Then we have one uh, company which is in the pharma space to basically disrupt and optimize um, what is called visual inspection. So for all the vaccination shots that are now produced globally, each of these little vials that you know uh, from TV needs to be inspected before. And here we're developing along the lines, as I mentioned, machine agnostic uh, for the full industry, software as a service product, uh, AI-based solution that uh, transforms how it, this is done and significantly increases efficiency there and therefore also can increase uh, speed to market for drugs, especially in those uh, crisis situations that we're facing right now. And then we have a third company, uh, which is currently uh, uh, close to be ready to uh, spin out, which is going to use success psychology and gamification features to increase engagement of manual workers. And with that, increase efficiency and with that create value uh, for the industry. So I would say we are, we are quite advanced. I think we have like a, a, a strong model that works very well and a blueprint to do this as a traditional company, which is uh, happened very seldom. So I would say we are in, in kindergarten, yeah? we're out of uh, or not kindergarten. We're out of kindergarten. I would say we're probably in elementary school, uh, and we're working very fast in direction middle school right now. Yeah. Wow, lots of things to pick up on here. Uh, well, first off, extremely fascinating uh, story of, of kind of a I guess a you know a German industrial company really transforming and embracing some some new uh, approaches here. I don't know how much you can talk about the gamification company, but you know it's all the rage right now to be worried about and uh, try to solve this kind of workforce crisis. Arguably, you know, which is a bit of a strange phenomenon in the in the world here that there actually is a lack of qualified manufacturing workers at a time where you know you're sort of wondering, you know, are all the jobs gone for uh, to automation? But the opposite is sort of happening. So. I was curious, you know, you may not be able to say much about it, but tell me a little bit about why you started this effort. Why do you yes, so think manufacturing workers need to be more engaged? So uh, maybe let me pick up the topic because there's uh, we, we addressed it actually on multiple sides and areas, uh, but I also get a little bit back on the uh, gamification piece. Um, but in principle, all of our solutions are user-centric. And what we mean is that we basically have to have this dual role, which is very different from uh, direct-to-consumer businesses. On the one hand side, you need to engage the user, which is typically a, a worker in the, on the shop floor. And on the other hand side, you need to create value for the customer, 
who's typically, let's call him the owner of the company or somebody who is there to manage the PL. So you need to keep both inside and you need to focus on the user and uh, make him happy uh, or her happy in order to create, to change behavior. And with that change behavior, trigger actions that create value. So all of our solutions are actually really centered around the user and um, this lack of qualified labor is uh, actually a very, very strong point. For example, also for factory power, uh, what we do there basically is to use the solution and the AI engines to augment manual workers, right? You might have like a lot of these in this industry this is very common. You have people who do this for 20, 30 years, used to be due to the old education system, highly qualified, but didn't go to university and so on. So very smart, very skilled people um, who were able to run the machines highly efficient. This changed now. A lot, large part of this workforce is going to retire. The next generation is not as qualified and skilled or not interested to work in these roles. And it's very hard to keep up that uh, performance level. And there we basically also at Factorypel augment uh, the, the, the operators to basically be as good as least, to be as good as the best operator they're having on the shop floor who does that for 40 years and just feels it, yeah, basically what he needs to, what she needs to do. And uh, for gamification, letting getting more specific to your question is, so what we see, especially in manual labor, which uh, logistic, a lot of people think and believe, oh, this is all fully automatic. It will be all robots. Uh, I don't see that coming. Uh, I really think uh, man, humans have capabilities that are very hard to uh, commercially viable, at least, uh, use with robotics. And that's a big case in uh, pick and pack in warehouse situations. And there you have like the issue that uh, people are typically poorly paid. They're really easy to exchange in a sense because people go, they go to the next door. It's, there's not a strong loyalty with the employer, but it's probably on both sides. And um, it's a big problem for warehouses that people don't show up. Um, it's all about only uh, performance-based pay. And um, we think we need to address that topic because the key driver for performance in a warehouse where you have manual pickers is how motivated the people are. So I would say if they walk faster, your performance is higher and you might make your cutoff date and then you might be able to do next day delivery. But if if you if people don't show up or, or and so on, you might not be able to make your cutoff date for logistics and then you cannot do the, the service that consumers are requiring or demanding. And therefore, we think that we need to find new ways, better ways to basically increase the performance and not doing this by brute force, performance pay and sanctioning, but rather use methodologies that are quite common with uh, white collar workers looking on the engagement. So how can we get people happier? How can we show them that we care? How can we tell them, okay, that was very good what you did. People typically are more motivated if they get if what they do is seen and they get acknowledged. And this is basically where we're focusing on. And that is basically then creating two key benefits. One is people are happier at their job. And at the same time for being happier and more motivated, um, they are working, let's say, uh, more efficiently. And then you have basically happier worker who have a more fulfilling job. And at the same time, you have better results, which translates into value for the, the owner of the company, but also value 
for the customers behind it because uh, warehouse efficiency is a key driver for uh, service quality, especially in the e-commerce space. You know, it's fantastic to hear this very sort of specific uh, problem statement. And it reminds me actually of, you know, very early on in our factory days, right? The whole entire kind of human, what's become uh, named the human relations school in, in management arose out of a similar challenge, right? They saw that it, in factories where there was a lot of manual labor, uh, I, I think it it wasn't mainly packaging because this was earlier on, but it was more sort of industrial factories. But anyway, it's a similar situation. And, you know, famously, right, one of the experiments at the Tavistock uh, uh, clinic actually discovered that even just turning on and off the lights at different times was enough <laughs> variation that you could spot that people, you know, got motivated in different ways. So it, anyway, we have come a far away since the 1920s when we were turning lights on and off to see if that would motivate workers. It seems like this is an interesting time with, uh, with kind of digital uh, ways of observing workers, of I guess counting and uh, and and uh, measuring the impact of what people are doing, but then taking the psychological motivation factor seriously and and finding some some ways to incent them. Is it a group based approach as well? I mean, is this uh, you know has it does it have to do with motivating groups of workers or is it just an individual perspective? I mean, in, in principle, so um, we we want to structure the product that it basically can do both. Uh, yeah. But it is basically not the intention is not to basically do what is common right now. Also, the careers and shipment company just to do forced ranking and give bonuses for the top 20 percent and uh, do it with performance based pay. So it's really like a combination of trying to do uh, group based uh, topics and individual performance acknowledgements and also include in the whole offering that you see like the machine if, if in I mean, a lot of people don't know. I didn't know before either. There's also know-how and tips and tricks that you need in order to basically perform in a warehouse, right? This is looks also simple, but if you if you if you don't know the tricks, it, it is very tedious sometimes. So to also say, okay, if somebody is not performing on level, to basically say, okay, uh, to nudge somebody who has more experience, hey, I think you should talk to somebody in your team. And he might need some help or to uh, send uh, training materials in and say, okay, see, you really, it takes really long time for you to uh, pick rods. Uh, do, look at that video. If you do it like that, it goes quicker. And to basically combine it and uh, do like ind individual gamification-based uh, motivation, and uh, but performance-based, basically do that in groups and shifts and try to get basically this... Uh, uh, performance ranking out of the system because that is existing and that is uh, not really driving engagement and therefore it's very hard to uh, uh, motivate people with that. Well, the other thing that I'm, I'm thinking based on what you're saying is, you know, you and I were talking a little bit earlier about uh, the World Economic Forum and the work that we're starting to do there regarding upskilling and training. But the challenge is sort of enormous. Not only, I mean, arguably, do we need to train a billion people over the next few years or maybe more, right? Everyone pretty much in the workplace needs to train and retrain themselves continuously. But also <clears throat> the kind of training that's needed is very specific. It's not like set aside a year and go learn something. It's like what you're talking about is for one worker, it is how to place this particular thing. And that's, you know, 
70% of what they do and they, there is a more efficient way of doing it. You have to figure out who does it best and record a training video essentially of that person doing it. And <clears throat> the number of tasks that you actually need to train people on, I mean, is astronomical. Yeah, and, and, and that's that's one of the reasons I think like one size doesn't fit all. <coughs> that's the reason also why we see uh, a lot of potential around the space in this manufacturing space for digital <coughs> technology enabled solutions. Because we do believe, for example, that uh, in the industry, it's there's so many different things that you need and there's not that many solutions out there. And therefore, um, we believe the only way of doing that at scale is to empower people, democratize the way of training other people uh, and automizing part of that, supporting that. And on the other hand side, it's also very important to do industry-specific solutions because this, um, uh, this is like the combination right, of industry and workflow-specific know-how, uh, methodology, and then technology to scale it. Well, I wanted to ask you about industry-specific because I do understand the point. Industries are historically very, very different. Um, some people, though, would argue that in the digital age, a lot of those things can be uh, seen in a different light, that you know, what's specific about an industry certainly isn't very obvious. So you, you may be right that there's something specific about tissue manufacturing, and I would invite you to tell me, you know, kind of what that is, but I can kind of imagine what it is. It has to do with, you know, how the supply chain is set up and how the actual factory set up just is very different than from any other production. And then conversely, you know, in, in more organic manufacturing, it's, it's again, it's again different, right? And the regulations, of course, make, make industries different, whether it's a regulatory space or not. Um, but, but also there are some sort of digital aspects that, are are also valid, uh, you know, across. So, how, why is it that you still think that very industry specific approaches, and you know, for you, pretty extreme because you're you're creating companies in these different verticals. Um, that that's a that's a different view, I would say. Then, certainly, a lot of startups that come into this field, they take well, they kind of have to take the opposite approach. They're sort of like our solution is one size fits all. Yeah, so I, I think like it's, it's probably not as black and white, uh, but I think like that, I mean, what if you look at least in this manufacturing space, there's a lot of companies out there, right? So we screen it regularly, but there's nobody really who, who nails it. Uh, so there's a lot of companies, uh, I mean, a few exceptions, but many, many startups around there, they're all in the low single million digit uh, annual recurring revenues, nothing really scales. It's, it's, it's really hard to somehow get traction. And um, my hypothesis, there's a reason for it because um, if you, you need to understand how you really create value and not just fictive value, but uh, value that you can see in the PL. And that is uh, overall in principle, 95% is probably the same across industries, but you really need to somehow nail per industry this last 5%. And this is more what I mean. Also, our solutions are not, I mean, we start in one industry that we understand well, we nail it there, and then we want to scale it out to other industries that are similar structured. But also there, we still believe we need to do adaptations to find those little and uh, little nitty clues and those little things that really make the difference. So I think like you, you can use the tech stack uh, quite widely, but you need to then to adapt and customize. And if you look at the consumer internet products, right? 
I mean, if you look how um, Facebook and Google work and uh, like, and there the power, a lot of power is with the designers, right? So how do we design it to nudge the right social behavior, right? Uh, how should the like button look like, right? So you could say the same, yeah, it doesn't matter, it just like do something, but apparently there goes hundreds and hundreds and thousands of men days, people days uh, development in that to figure it out, to get it exactly right. And I think that is similar in the in the industry solutions, digital industry solutions, where you need to nail those little things that drive the difference. And therefore you need to embark in the industry, uh, but then you can adapt it to the next industry. At least that's my uh, strong personal belief. Well, um, I mean, the way that I would think about it is uh, certainly, you know, in each industry and perhaps even in each factory. And this brings us a little bit to kind of this uh, concept dancing around the concept of lean, right? There was this idea at one point in time that everybody could adopt the, you know, the wonderful quality movement or or the Toyota production method, and it would mm-hmm. it would all go smoothly all around the world. But it has turned out, I would say, right, that in the fifty years and sixty years that have passed since these methods first were adopted, it's very tricky, uh, and there is really no kind of one size fits all for adopting, you, you know, and we've been dancing around this topic a little bit, you know, how do you improve productivity? And and the answer is slightly different, or even if there is one answer to, to try to understand how, you know, one particular factory or company did it and how, you know, and try to then copy that is, it seems to just be an elusive and hard thing to do. Um, I wanted you to comment a little bit on sort of like digital lean. I mean, this idea uh, that there is a way to implement these practices in a digital form. Uh, is that essentially what your company, uh, Kerber Digital, is trying to do? Digital leads? So, so, so a very good question. Uh, very few people, I think, uh, so, uh, think along these lines, but I share your thought uh, totally. So I think like lean, digital lean is kind of what we're doing, but I think what uh, comes on top of it, it's basically, you could say it's kind of lean on steroids because lean, as you said, is the issues a little bit. It's, uh, I mean, there comes the personality topic in there. There's also then uh, regional culture schemes, right? I mean, this, this was invented in Japan by Japanese people who are, they have certain traits which are very favorable for running out like a lean system, for example. And it's not so easy to, to, to scale globally, right? You need to adapt it. And what we're doing, though, is something like uh, um, most of the products are like a new form of lean, uh, so to say. I think it's a way, right way of saying it. And what is very interesting, what we can show and prove with Factropel, for example, is also the benefit comes on top. Uh, so the, the increase, productivity increase you get through lean programs um, is basically the foundation and we add it on top and really uh, put it basically on steroids because a lot of people would think, yeah, I can get the same and we had a customer where we had these discussions, uh, but I do lean, I get it all out of lean and then they realized, no, actually, I get uh, maybe two to three percentage points out of lean, uh, but I cannot get so many people on the sides because if I don't have people on every line standing, it, it doesn't sustain, and the digital products basically they sustain because they automize it. They get into the normal ways of doing, and I think that's one of the difference. It could be a, a very well uh, said, like the next generation of uh, lean movement in uh, manufacturing. Very well point. 
this is um, you know perhaps a difficult question to answer, but you know you are selling these solutions to others and you have clients. But how has the road been for Kerber internally? to make this transition. In other words, you know, we talk about how difficult it is, in fact, to transform a workforce. Now, if you if you go back and sort of adopt that attitude and kind of look at your own company, how has this transition been? Because you, you're dealing with the same kinds of workers, right? You're in the same country. Sure. Um, I'm sure that has been challenging as well. How have the employees handled this transition to digital and digital lean? Um, yeah. Yeah, so I think it goes in waves, right? So I say we're now in the third wave. Uh, the first wave was really a lot in the beginning, uh, seeing is believing, understanding, getting buy-in, uh, making clear this is not magic. I mean, it's basically about identifying problems. Problems is a good thing. Talk to your customer, don't develop a product, design thinking. So a lot of this foundational work. That was, let's say, the first phase. A lot of MVPs, work with a customer together, and a lot of, foundation learning, attention, and uh, making it clear, okay, this is not going to go away. It's here to stay, so you better might uh, accept it a little bit. And then there was the second wave, um, which was then shifting away from buying into proving that this can create commercial value because ultimately we're looking to uh, create commercial value and it's super important for the organization to prove that this is not just... um, uh, fun talks, sneaker guys walking around in fancy offices, but there's actually also value behind it because a lot of people um, have on top of their mind, okay, all of these startups, they don't make money, they're worth billions, they're burning hundreds of millions. Okay, so I mean, I'm not up for that, right? Uh, we, we are not worth billions, but we make every year 100 billion with the machines. So I think we have a right business. So what are you doing? And that was a little bit the second wave where basically transformed Kerber Digital more to a company builder that we can basically find a way to compete with external ventures. And that was basically now the second wave. And since FactoryPal as a company is very uh, successful, uh, that helps a lot because this is, this is again, another form of seeing as believing is like proven uh, that people say, okay, maybe there, there's a point, let's do that. And now we're going to the third wave where it's really scale the value creation and bring people along the lines. And what we're doing is really a lot on training, capability building. And we have this luxury position compared to standalone companies that we have best of both worlds, right? We have hundreds and thousands of years of industry experience our machines to run. Plus we have uh, in Kerber Digital, the top tech talents. And that together is basically creating a lot of value, what I call unfair advantage. And the other thing, it also takes people along because when people work together, they solve challenges, they learn, they adapt. And with that, we also basically upskilling the entire organization. You know, you foreshadowed my question because that was going to be the other thing. Um, I'm pretty interested in the fact that there's a lot of excitement around manufacturing among a very small group of of digital companies. And what that means is, I guess, also that if you are a digital engineer, um, there is a bit of a learning curve. First of all, you have to be alerted to the opportunity that does exist in manufacturing. And, and, and some young engineers only see that when they actually start working for, for a company and discover, wow, this, you know, it may look like we were uh, working for an industrial segment of clients, but, you know, these are very exciting challenges. How do you bring your own 
sort of digital workforce along. You were alluding to it. You you know you have the best of both worlds. What what kind of reskilling is needed for a software engineer to actually understand the true challenges behind uh, the solutions they now have to build? Right, because design thinking is all nice, but this is a serious, specific industry that they're they're entering, which is quite different from this very generic digital skill set that you learn in school. Yeah, so I think like um, it's I think there's like some principles that you need to understand. So, for example, like I, I'm sometimes um, phrasing that quite provocative is to say. You know, in consumer internet, you say, okay, I just release it. If I burn 10,000 customers, who cares? I have another 5 billion. Yeah, in most of our industries, we maybe have only 550, let it be maximum 30 customers, most of the 100. So you cannot just burn uh, 10% of those because they know all each other and you're done. So this is one of the things that like this rapid prototyping, yes, in a sense, but you need to adapt it. You need to stage, you need to test it. You cannot release weekly. If you put something on the shop floor, it really needs to work because otherwise also the manufacturing is standing still. So this is a little bit, this. it's it's agile, but it has a little bit different quality requirements. So quality assurance is a very big topic for us. Uh, cybersecurity is a tremendous topic for us. We cannot even enter the customer. So there are some aspects which is not necessarily reskilling. I think the skill set is available. It's a little bit a mindset way and a way of working. And uh, you need to be sometimes a little bit more patient. But this being said, I strongly and firmly believe that, uh, let's say, uh, the next big thing in digital will be driven around digital tools and manufacturing. Because um, we're all consumers, we need to somehow solve the sustainability issues, sustainability footprint, and by basically making manufacturing more efficient, you significantly improve the situation uh, that you have less waste, you have less resource need, um, you can give uh, people a more fulfilling job. And I think that will be a, a big, big value driver. And uh, the good news there is for all the entrepreneurs out there who are looking for ideas, it's these days probably a little bit difficult to do the next uh, the next Bitcoin trading platform or the next niche e-commerce store. But in manufacturing space, if you really get down to the, the problems, uh, there's still a lot of low-hanging fruits around there. We're just waiting, let's say, for the first unicorns to come out, I think. Uh, and then you will see like a tremendous uh, movement, people looking what they can create there. And uh, what I observe at least, uh, would be curious to hear your opinion on this one, Sean, because you're also uh, very well connected. I see more and more VC money flowing into that space. I see more and more consumer teams I know who exited saying, yeah, maybe I look at that space now. Um, so I think there, it's just starting and that's the good news. That that field is not divided yet. It's, it's still early days. Yeah. Hmm. Well, well, I was going to uh, ask you, since this is uh, m- mostly me asking you, I'll, I'll give you my opinion in a second. But, you know, so you were alluding to it. Uh, in Europe specifically, where, where do you think the European manufacturing industry is heading? I mean, all arrows are pointing towards a, a, a very sustained focus on sustainability, which uh, is going to, you know, have, have one... Uh, you know, is driving in one specific direction, I guess, although, you know, it's a multifaceted topic and there are many, many things that arguably fall under that umbrella. But also, like you said, if the, there is now 
a sustained focus on manufacturing and it becomes really recognized, which I think, you know, we are both, uh, our companies are both members of the World Economic Forum. And you could arguably say that over the last year, the manufacturing platform, you know, in that organization has taken center stage for fairly obvious reasons around the vaccine, but also around many, many other kinds of manufacturing, which we have, you know, we've even coined this phrase essential worker to to, to be, uh, you know, very different and much more all-encompassing than many people who are not very aware of industrial work and, and of manufacturing supply chains and how those work. So arguably, you know, uh, if that's the that becomes the sustained uh, innovation wave, you know, where where does that lead us? Where are we heading? So, so I think we're heading to a, a, a time frame in manufacturing where engineering of the metal will not be the differentiator anymore. I think that there's no need really to do more. Uh, uh, like faster and more powerful machines. It's much more about using the technology that is out there, the engineering technology, smarter and more wisely. And I think the value creation in the future will come uh, through software products in all kind of industrial spaces. So being it, I mean, it starts uh, straight from MES systems, right, where you are more playing in. It goes to all these kind of uh, applications in all of these steps, uh, and there are hundreds and thousands of steps in the industries. And uh, I do believe that that will be coming, that uh, software companies will transform how manufacturing is done in the future. And um, yeah, robotics will play a role, but also the value creation in robotics is also for the software stack. It's less, uh, well, you were alluding to this idea of augmenting human operations, and I think we share the, the vision for what that space could become. And also, it's a very positive vision, certainly in my mind, right? Because it takes all the negatives of uh, automation and doesn't just put a spin on it, but literally just makes a more humanly aware, creates a more humanly aware direction. Uh, where productivity kind of goes hand in hand with improving, you know, what we talked about earlier, the motivation of human workers, but also their efficiency sim simultaneously. So I, I, so to, my answer to what you're saying is I see an enormous space opening up under the umbrella of augmentation. And it is an, an augmentation that looks quite different from what the tech visionaries of, you know, a wired or, you know, that kind of a futurist would say, you know, augmented reality. So this is yeah. for me much more than, and certainly much more than VR. It's not just sort of headsets and, and you know, complete augmentation and, and virtualization. It is actually very, I mean, some of it just doesn't even look very fascinating, you know, from a futuristic <laughs> perspective, but it actually augments a worker by like 5%, 10% or helps them out in ways that makes them tremendously more productive as individuals and as teams, and it adds meaning to the work, which, you know, was, I guess, under threat, because when you're completely always asked to, you know, make pro incremental process improvements, and it all has to do with sort of like speed and stamina, at some point, you tire from that kind of focus. But the technologies, you know, in the digital space are enabling a completely new wave. And as you said, there are discrete problems on the shop floor today that if you solve each of them, they, they are all verticals of, of, of significant magnitude. 
and 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 manufacturing is what we are right we are we we want to make things and we want to <laughs> shop at the end of the yeah. day also exactly uh so you know I, I i agree with you i think the manufacturing industry um is an essential industry and it hasn't changed for years if it now starts to change it could change in ways that aren't just going to turn into digital lean but could actually turn into things that we can't even imagine today um and i think we are at the beginning rather than at the end of this journey so i guess you know in closing i just want you to think about and 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 give us a your best guess in sort of how do you combine agility and scale going forward uh and what's your best advice i guess specifically to to companies that are starting to embrace this idea that not only are they trying to digi- digitize they're trying to digitize the right way and the right way for them so kind of take ownership of which direction they want to go because it's not like digital is like one it doesn't take you in one direction it takes you in the direction presumably you want to go but if you don't know where you're heading I, my my fear is that a digital solution will will simply right worst case just give you a lot of headaches and yeah, and then so, even best case will take you somewhere but not where you wanted to go no fully agree so i think like the key the key point you need to keep in mind is think really about what problems you want to solve and where you have basically value pool sitting and then go step by step what is really the benefit uh, the problem you want to solve and what what ways can you imagine and then go application by application. I personally believe uh, this is also one of the reasons why this was slow so far in the industry. This concept of having one IoT platform that solves it for everyone, you just need to connect all the data flows and then it's done. I think that is where which didn't lead uh, as far so far. You really need to uh, go on the application case by case and start with the things uh, where you have the feeling at least that you have a lot of inefficiencies and little things can make the difference and very important keep the user in mind uh, and not the technology technology is just a means uh, for enabling and equipping the user it's not it has no purpose by itself and data just for having data has also no purpose and no value you really need to focus on application Daniel, it's been fascinating. I am so happy that you were willing to do this deep dive into, you know, the experience that you have, uh, you know, through Kerber, but also ostensibly, I think, an experience that a lot of companies are going to have to go through in the in the time ahead. I thank you so much for your perspective. Thank you very much, Trond, and a good rest of the day for you. You have just listened to episode twenty of the Augmented Podcast with host Trond Anhang. The topic was the digitalization of Kerber. Our guest is Daniel Shabo, CEO of Kerber Digital. In this conversation, we talked about transforming a German industrial company through digital acquisitions and spin-outs. We discussed accessing customers to co-develop scale commercially, where European industry is heading, and how to combine agility and scale. My takeaway is that Kerber's journey is still quite unique and also about to become typical, at least for manufacturing or engineering companies that want to survive. Embracing deep digitalization is a smart choice, but not the easiest feat to accomplish. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co 
or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 10, Brief History of Manufacturing Software, episode 9, The Fourth Industrial Revolution Post-COVID-19, or episode 4, A Renaissance of Manufacturing. Augmented, upskilling the workforce for Industry 4.0 Frontline Operations.